as I said in the movie, the macro was the currency. So you got to explain that to me. How is it that mackerel's like floating around like okay. dollar bills? I don't All get right, it. I'm going to explain it because I know you can't get it. I can't. From your ivory tower in Seattle, <laughs> Pete Nordstrom. That's right. There's okay. no mackerel here. All right. So mackerel, they sold it at the commissary. And it was very valuable because people would cook with it. And if you wanted stuff in prison, let's say you wanted someone to do your laundry, you would pay them a mackerel, you know? And let's say you wanted to buy a pack of cigarettes. Boom, you pay a mackerel. So that was it. So then I realized I need to get as many mackerels as I can and I could live pretty well. You know, I could have someone. Make <laughs> I, I my hope bed. you had a refrigerator or something, because I can't imagine like a pile of mackerel sitting there in your cell. Well, there's, yeah. We had little fridges in the cube where we lived. And so they went in there. And, you know, you, they were valuable. People <laughs> wanted mackerel, they needed the protein to survive. Everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, I want to introduce you to the founder and current design chief of the famous industry disrupting footwear brand, Steve Madden. likely already know Steve Madden's name, either from the iconic Big Head Girl commercial from the late 90s, or from seeing it printed on the side of the shoes sitting in your closet. In fact, I was talking to my sister-in-law last night, and she says, I swear, everybody in my age, at one point or another, has owned a pair of Steve Madden shoes. And I believe that's true. He has sold a lot of shoes. But if it's not for the shoes, you may have heard his name mumbled through the lips of a drugged up Jonah Hill in the big budget Martin Scorsese film, Wolf of Wall Street. Seemingly out of nowhere, Steve Madden became one of the biggest names in the shoe business of the 90s and early 2000s. But the company's meteoric rise to fame met a brick wall when Steve took some seriously bad financial advice from a childhood friend, resulting in criminal convictions and a few years in prison. Steve tells his side of the story and further exposes his struggles with drug addiction in the documentary film Madman and his reveal-all book, The Cobbler. But I think what's impressive is that he powered through all of that and he emerged out the other side. And this is a very successful business. It's actually one of the top 10 vendors at Nordstrom today. As much as I've known Steve's story, you know, because I've known him over the years, it's been really fun for me to be able to hear him talk about it in such an open and vulnerable way. And I think you're really gonna enjoy his story. It's super entertaining. He's a great guy and kind of a legend of the shoe business. So let's get into it. And there he is. Where are you? I, I know that it, it's not a visual, but I'd like to see it. I know. Here Press I the am. Button. There you go, lad. <laughs> How are you? You know, I'm pretty good. How about you? I'm doing well. It's so, we live in interesting times, though, don't we? <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I feel that's what I say to everybody. It's like, I think we could have picked something easier to do, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not at the beginning, I'm at the end, so. Yeah, I actually went and watched your documentary from 2017. Yeah. It was really good. You know, I know you and I know your story, but there was a lot there I didn't know, and I thought it was super revealing, and I was impressed at how vulnerable and stuff you were and all that. Was that easy for you to make? You know, when I when I did it, it wasn't difficult, but looking at it, it does make me squirm now. Although one shouldn't call oneself vulnerable. That's for <laughs> others to say. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yes, I, I felt a little, I don't know, I was in the mood to tell my story. You know, I was like, okay, because they made The Wolf of Wall Street, which was, you know, was a big part of, and I thought, well, let me get my story out while I can remember it, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, I squirm now a little bit. And I wrote a book too, and the same thing. And I was fine with it at the time, but then when I did the audio <laughs> of the book, and I was like, oh God, did I have to say that? And, you know, <laughs> and I talked about so many things and relationships that didn't work out and being in a drug addict and being in recovery. and. I don't know why I did that. I just had this moment where I thought, well, let's just tell, you know, the truth. Let's try to sort of get it out there. I thought the truth is more interesting. And you know what? Everybody knows everything today. Everybody can Google you. And so there's no point in hiding anything, you know? And also I think that kind of stuff, I always feel like somebody could hear it, see that I'm doing well and that I, you know, that I'm sober and that it could help somebody. What really came through in that documentary to me was your sense of positivity and optimism, even though, I mean, you know, you've, you've had your share of challenges. You just talked a little bit about that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm curious where that comes from. Have you always been that way? You know, I don't even feel that I am that way, actually. I'm kind of like Chicken Little. I always think the sky is falling. But I've always had a, a sort of a North Star when it comes to the business. I had this sense, I said, well, if I just make good shoes that people want to buy, I don't have to worry about a lot of other things. They're going to kind of all fall into place. And that's really, that, that was my overriding sort of philosophy, and it still is to this day. The other thing that really struck me was, first of all, I mean, we're pretty close to the same age, and you know, I grew up selling shoes and all that stuff too, and while that happened for me on the West Coast in a department store. And yeah. For you in Long Island, I was struck by kind of just that shared experience of like you're you're working in the stock room and then yeah. like you're trying to sell women's shoes and like the styles of the shoes and it's all the same era as me. And then the, the other thing that struck me is just growing up in this business and listening to my dad talk about his reverence for the shoe guys and you know, they were kind of a rough and tumble bunch, but they were all like good guys and super hardworking. And it's really impressive to me to, you know, see the trajectory of your life that's been grounded so much in this kind of like can do and hard work yeah. thing. Uh, and like you said in, your, in the documentary, you're a grinder. So yeah. I, that's another thing. Have you, have you always been that way? Uh, yes, I was always a grinder. And it's, I love that word, by the way. I suppose that comes from feeling that... You know, I was small as a kid. I wasn't, the, like we played ball and I always felt like, you know, I always felt like I wasn't the most talented guy. I wasn't fast and I loved to play sports and I just, and I'd love to grind. 
And I always, it comes from that kind of a place. Yeah, you mentioned growing up, and that was one of the things I was interested in, because I, I, I think of you now, I think of you as a guy that's super comfortable taking the lead and taking initiative and really driving an agenda and all that stuff. I'm curious, like your social standing, like when you were a kid, were you like a leader amongst your friends? I mean, you talked about, you know, sports or how big you were, but I mean, did, were you the guy that was kind of the leader of your group? Yeah, I always was. I was, a, I was, a, I was a leader with the boys, but when it came to the girls, I wasn't a leader. <laughs> <laughs> now, why do you say that? No, it's funny. No, because, you know, boys, you know, I have teenagers now. So, you know, I know I'm reliving it in my old age. It's cr kind of crazy. And, you know, I watch my son. He's obsessed with basketball and obsessed with girls. And he's much better at girls. He's, be he's better at basketball <laughs> and girls than me. So tell me what it's like then also your relationship with your parents, because you talk about a little bit in the documentary about with your dad, you never talk a lot about your mom, but as you look back, you know, particularly you being a parent now, how does that make you think about your parents and how they influenced you? You know, they're both gone. Uh, and my, my mom died uh, nine years ago. And uh, I have come, <laughs> I have come to respect them so much now that I have kids and you know, I learned so much from them and I was such a little bastard. <laughs> and uh, I feel like without trying, they taught me a lot. You know, when we try, they call it sort of helicopter parenting and all of that. It was, it's just a lot different now, you know. You know, it wasn't like, okay, you know, we're gonna do golf lessons now. It wasn't like that, you know. And it's like that now, like I want my son, if. Like, I want him to learn golf, I want to give him lessons. But with me, it was like, here's the golf bag, go to the golf course, and go figure it out. And I did, you know, and there was a few things like that. You know, I mean, parents go to basketball practice. My, my parents, they never did things like that. Go to practice? Yeah. They barely came to a Little League game, you know. But it worked out okay. You know, it was okay. Yeah, you know, so you're talking about your parents, and I was, I was struck by that experience that you had. So you go away to college, and then you describe it. Like your dad basically came down and said, that's it, you're, you're coming home. So what, what was that like? Because, I mean, you're not 15 when that happens. You're 19 or something. You, you know, you're yeah, a guy that I was 19. Decisions. Well, I mean, was that embarrassing for you? Did you feel guilty? I mean, how did that, what was that like with your dad when he came down and kind of called you and said, that's it, you're coming home? I suppose I was relieved. Now, why do you say that? I, I was relieved because I was struggling in school. I just couldn't, I didn't have the discipline, you know, to go to school. You know, I just couldn't do it. You know, I was not prepared to be on my own and uh, looking back on it, you know, so immature. And I just went crazy with drugs. And of course, I did have attention deficit disorder. I couldn't sit still. And so it was just a, dis it was just a disaster. And he was like, uh-uh, I'm not wasting, I'm work, you know, he was one of these guys. My dad never missed a day of work. And I, I literally never remember him staying home with a cold. And he was like, no way, you're not doing any work. I'm not wasting our money on this. Well, if I was talking to the 19-year-old Steve Madden, what would you have told me you thought your future was going to be? What kind of job you were going to have? I probably would have told you that I wanted to be a stockbroker or something, or I don't know what, but... Interestingly enough, I, I went to work in a shoe store at 17, and I did love it, 
and th- I had this sense that there were, that this would be something that I would do. And uh, it was a really interesting time in the shoe business. And it was a lot of young people in it. And I was really, I was very fortunate. So you kind of fell into it. But it wasn't something you aspired to go do necessarily. It, it kind of happened. Serendipitous. Just walked into a shoe store in the town that I lived in. And I knew that the owner of the store went to school with my big brother. So I said, I'm Johnny Madden's brother. And I knew they were tight. <laughs> and I got a job as a stock boy. Okay, you know, I was, when you're talking about it, you're, you know, the imagery that you showed of the shoes and the way you talked about it, and then you were working at LJ Simone, what have you. So I was sitting here, actually, I woke up in the middle of the night last night, started thinking about all these shoes that I can remember from when I was like 16, 17, 18, 19 years old selling. It's like the Famolari Soon, I mean, the Bear Traps, yeah. the Mia Clogs. I mean, you know, I can go on and on. I mean, maybe the shoe I was the biggest single item that I ever sold was around as a salesperson was probably the LJ Simone Monaco. I mean, I don't the know if Monica, that's a shoe yeah. you'd... Yeah. Did you, did you know, the design funny thing that about one? that shoe... So I was 22 years old, and um, I used to wear penny loafers. I used to wear Bass Weegians. And, you know, I was a salesman for LJ Simone. They took me out of a store, and I was fooling around with the shoe. I wasn't really involved in product too much. And I cut the tongue off it. So the Monaco has the penny keeper on the vamp. Right. It's not a loose keeper like the Bass Weegian. And I did that shoe and it was a, it, it changed my life because it was such a success and I created this shoe and I thought, you know, I never thought of myself as a shoe designer, you know, and I made this shoe and I remember the day I made it or I remember that Princess Grace drove over a cliff and died, and that's why I called it the Monaco. No kidding, and, I, I never knew that. Yeah, that is a true story. I mean, that shoe was unbelievable. We sold so many of those it things, and it was, it kind of had that great blend of, yeah. the style was right for the time, but it was comfortable. It kind of had all those elements, and you guys yeah, would just really amazing. pump out you know, the new seasonal colors. I mean, you know, it doesn't work that way as much anymore, but that shoe lasted for several years, because you. People, they loved it, and they'd, they'd wear it out, then they'd buy a new pair. I mean, I don't know yeah. how many of those things we sold. Do you, do you know yeah, how many of those the, that sold over the years? Millions of pairs, millions of pairs. So that was something that changed my life. I always thought it was like, um, you know, the music business, like creating hits, you know? And that was a hit, the Monaco. And, you know, that was for L.J. Simone, and then I, I took that same formula and started Steve Madden with it. I think... What was happening at L.J. Simone was, I think the partners were fighting with each other. And so I would sneak off to the pattern room and start fooling around on my own. Like, you know, let's put this upper on this bottom. You know, it wasn't any kind of great genius. It was like, you know, let's try that wedge. Let's try this. And, you know, I would fool around with different things and they would make the samples there on the spot for me. And I seemed to have a little bit of a touch. It wasn't, you know... Any kind of great genius. <laughs> so, but when you were involved with LJ Simone, you were in selling, did you ever have Nordstrom as a customer? Or was that all like Ted Ackerman out in the West Coast handling that account? I wasn't allowed to talk to Nordstrom. <laughs> oh, they wouldn't let why me, is that? They wouldn't let me talk to them. You know, it, in those days, you know, it was like that. And our West Coast guy, he controlled that business, Ted Ackerman. Yeah. And he was territorial. I mean, you weren't even, like, I wasn't even allowed in the room. <laughs> So you probably knew my brother Blake. I mean, I was in that orbit at a certain point too. Yeah, Blake. I used. To, I remember. I'll never forget Blake. 
he was a buyer for 01 and I had to sell him and I'll never forget him. You know, he had these brogues. <laughs> he had big feet and he had these big brogues and he'd sit down, he'd put his briefcase on his lap and he'd take out a PO, you know, and he'd write the order right there. He'd use his briefcase as a table like, and I'll never forget that. And I thought, who is this guy? Oh, that's Blake Nordstrom. That's the owner's son. Oh, shit. got to be on my best behavior here. And he would sit and they'd write the order on the spot. And he was, he was very sort of considerate. And that was a great time. That was a good memory, actually. Yeah, a couple points in my career where I was getting the shoe business. Blake was my boss. And he was a great boss on the shoe stuff because he was so... He was really passionate, enthusiastic about it, too. And he loved that he had these relationships with different vendors. And if something got hot or if you need it, he like he loved picking up the phone. Like, let's just air them in. You're like, whatever it takes. Let's just got to yeah. go for it. And I, I learned that whole kind of go for it thing in that era, which was kind of it was a little more wild west in those days there no one yeah. was talking about inventory turns and gross margins it's all about sales yeah it was 40 years ago it was units units and sales how many pairs did you sell you know it was that kind of thing and that was how i was raised in the business which is when we would call up when i started opening my own stores i would say how many pair you have up today i never asked for the dollars today we asked for the dollars yeah but in those days they say how many how many pair did you sell so it was a different, we come from that same school and uh, of course the world has changed and, but the same things apply as good shoes, pleasing the customer, making good shoes, making hot shoes, shoes they want to buy. And uh, that's what I think about every day. I really do. I still think about that. Yeah. You know what? It's to me that one of the things that I get concerned about is maybe some of that has been lost because as you probably well know from being on the other side of dealing with different retailers, so much of it gets treated like a math problem right now, rather yeah. than, I mean, when you're talking about sitting in a shoe department and just watching customers feet or like being super aware if you're on the street or on a plane or airport, you're just paying attention. And then, you know, you get the zeitgeist to something that's really happening and you go for it. And, you know, I, that's one of the things I was interested in asking about. It seemed like you had a pretty sizable risk profile. You were willing to go for it. I always kind of re remember you as being a guy like, we should make a big bet on this. You know, really yeah, go sure. for it. I mean, did you feel like you took risks or? Yeah, well, you're always taking risks when it comes to the Depeche mode, fast fashion. You're always betting and you're trying to have inside information as much as you can. You, you know, you're trying to do your homework. It's a bit like being a detective. Well, what happened last year and what's happening in the better, you know, in the designer market, you know, in the, you know, that kind of thing. Like, oh, Gucci selling this, you know, trying to put together a puzzle and to, to mitigate your risk. But ultimately, you must make bets to deliver shoes. You know, the other thing about you guys that's different, you know, you had buyers in every store. That's the greatest thing in the world. You know, to have a guy running your floor like it was his own store, living and breathing every pair. Not only that, but he knows what's going on. So he knows what he needs as as opposed to today. We do it by computer and, you know, we have more information today on some level, but it's different. It's not that same sort of personal thing. 
There's nothing like that. Of course, we have less people in the stores today because of the internet. That's true too. I mean, that's just a fact. The traffic is not what it was. You know, you couldn't move on Saturdays in some stores, you know. Right. You know, today people can shop online. It takes people out of the malls, takes people out of the shopping centers. And So how do you think about that? I mean, do you... Do you lament and have nostalgia? Oh, the stores is great and the online's kind of art. I mean, how do you feel? Are you agnostic about how shoes get sold that way or? No, I don't lament. I'm not a lamenter. I'm not one of those people that thinks that my music is definitely better than my kids' music. Even though I like my music better, but I know that my son thinks that Drake is the greatest thing in the world. And so I acknowledge that things change in life, you know, and I'm I'm a sort of a believer in that. I mean, I I am a creature of my own age and time, but, you know, I embrace change. I accept it sometimes reluctantly, but I know it's here. And you know what? I'm not going to sit and say in my day, you know, yeah, I don't think it's fruitful in the business. Things yeah, change. They sure do. Hey, so they do. Tell me a little bit about, again, your drive for success and where that comes from is, and then also like your relationship to money. I mean, did you grow up around money when you were young? I mean, is that one of the things that's really drives you or is it more something? I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, where you get all this, you know, motivation? Ah, so yes, that's a good question. Certainly I was motivated by money and, uh, You know, I really am turned on by the idea of creating a shoe and selling it to lots of folks and making a lot of money. That's a turn on to me. And I would say, and I used to say to college kids and people that would ask me, you know, what's your, what what influences you? What's your influence? And I would say, this is what I do for a living. I'm here to pay the bills. This is what this is what influenced me. This is what moves me. And everybody's aghast when I say that. How can I say that? How dare you say that? You know, I should say, you know, Van Gogh paintings or something that I saw at the Frick Museum. And certainly I'm influenced by my surroundings, there's no doubt. But you know, that's really, you know, this is a this is what I do for a living and I take it seriously. And I'm, I'm sort of proud of it, to be honest with you. Well, you should be. I mean, but does that mean it's transferable? Like you could have just as easily been selling auto parts or like insurance or something or because to me, again, it feels so. like you leaned into this because you got a genuine interest in the shoe business. You know what? Because I did it I'm a bit like that book, uh, Outliers, because I did everything in the shoe business. You know, in that thing that, you know, they talk about the Beatles, you know, playing in Hamburg for like 15 hours a day for like three years and honing their craft. And that was me. I did every job in the shoe business and here I am. So and I just it was just luck. I don't know that I would have been good at anything else. So going along, you had the success, you've created this thing. And then that gets to the whole story about, you know, Wolf of Wall Street stuff and and how you know, then money and business became, you know, the central focal point of everything that was going on around you. So I'm curious what that was like for you being a guy that's just looking, I'm just trying to make shoes people like, I want to make money, I want to be successful. How did it end up happening that you got yourself in hot water around, you know, financial issues? Hot water. 
I got myself. <laughs> yes, I was in hot water. Yeah, you. I was. <laughs> you were in the some water hot water. The water was hot. It was muy caliente. Okay, I'm going to give it to you straight, buddy boy. Okay. So, you know, I never had a lot of money. And so my buddy, a childhood friend, said, listen, I work for this company and we raise money for small companies. Like, we could get you like 600 grand. And he might as well have said 600 million. And there was so much money, it was just, it was like the craziest thing I've ever seen. You know, the stocks would open up at four and they would go to 12 and you, you knew it was gonna happen. And it was just lots of money being made and it was very intoxicating. And I got very involved with these guys. And simultaneously, you know, they gave me money for my company. So we had two things happening. I had the deals I was doing with them and it was just like one after another and I was just involved up to my neck. It was quite a story, but I was very greedy and I was very short-sighted. I got caught up in all this money and, uh, you know, it was kind of a, we thought a gray area, I lied to myself. And so it just went on and on until it didn't. And of course the guys got caught and then they, you know, they named me as a, what they call a flipper. So were you part of that whole scheme or was it kind of happening to you? Uh, I would say both things are true, but I, w- I certainly wasn't directing it, but I was, I was what they call, they would park the stock with me. They would sell me the stock at four and buy it back for me at six and then resell it. So I was part of it. I was definitely a part of it. So how long of a period of time was that where that was happening before you ended up getting, you know, caught by the authorities that this was a deal? Caught by Johnny Law? Yeah. How, how long between <laughs> when they approached you and this all was happening to like you got caught? So Stratton Oakmont went out of business. They were shut down. And, and then we started hearing rumblings within months that the people were cooperating and anybody who did business with Stratton Oakmont was going to get in trouble. And then it happened. <laughs> and that was it. So did you have a feeling like from the get go that you're probably going to be in trouble where you're like, oh, no, I didn't do anything wrong. We're going to get I'm going to get a good attorney. I'm going to get out of this thing. I knew I was going to get in trouble and I knew what was going to happen. And I knew an attorney wasn't going to get me out of it. And it was just a question of making the best deal I could sort of admitting the wrongdoing. So was, was that part of it that you got a favorable deal because no, you were cooperating? No, I didn't cooperate. I could have gotten a much better deal. I probably, if I cooperated, I probably wouldn't have gone to jail at all. Oh. But I just said, look, you know, I did it. Let's get it. Let's go. Let's get on with it. And, um, you know, it was terrible, but some good things came from it. And I do have a sort of feeling that a lot of things happen for a reason in life. I don't mean to get corny on you, but I have the most wonderful life today and have had, and so many unbelievable things were a result of, of my tragedy, of, my, you know, of this calamity, which I certainly was responsible for, but so many great things came from it For instance, I got my wife, you know, she came to visit me and we fell in love and then we had a family and I have three kids and I don't think that would have happened. So God works in mysterious ways, not to get all spiritual on you, but for sure I would not have those kids if I didn't go 
to the can. <laughs> so that's good. Well, yeah, I'll tell the, you another positive thing. Okay. The reason that I have such a great business today was because I was forced to let go and hire a lot of great people because, you know, I was, I was a one-man band, you know? And so I realized if I was going away, I better have a deeper company. And I was forced to have these great people. And there's no way you can get big without a great team. You know, no one guy could do it. And that was also a result of this. So explain to me when you're there, it's like, okay, I did it. Let's get it over with. And then you're there and you're, and you're literally going to jail. It's, it's happening. What, what was going through your mind there? Were you like, I mean, you must have been afraid. I mean, what did you think was going to happen with your business and just like, with your life at that point? I wasn't afraid. I was not afraid. I was a little numb. I was a little bit like, you know, you get numb. All of a sudden, you're just in survival mode. I mean, maybe I was fearful about my future, perhaps. But, you know, at first I thought that things would maybe change. You know, everything could change dramatically. But, you know, I put people in place to keep the company going, keep it status quo, keep the morale high. I was only going to be away a few years. And they, they kept the company. They didn't grow it a lot, but they kept it pretty good shape. They kept the car running and in good shape. And when I came back, we just exploded. Yeah. Were you aware of what was going on? Were you able to kind of at least keep score and see how it was going? Not really. I mean, they would tell me, but I was just trying to live day by day and get through this. So when you think about that experience then, I mean, what do, what do you think? Well, either like the lessons learned from there or what did you learn about yourself? Well, lessons learned. There are so many lessons learned, but, you know, of course, human beings are prone to take things for granted. But, you know, it was it was a pretty Spartan existence and it was pretty awful. And so I have a maybe, maybe on good days, I have a very deep appreciation of a lot of little things in life. Did it make you feel like, well, maybe the money stuff isn't as important. What's more important, I mean, maybe more about relationships or people or whatever. Well, we, we know that money does not bring you happiness. I mean, me and you both know that. Yep. This is a, just a truth. But certainly some things do bring comfort to your life. And it's a good thing, you know, to have good towels and a good bed to sleep in and you know, good vegetables, I suppose. You know, I'm not trying to be corny, but I enjoy them without, with, while knowing that, that just money in and of itself will not bring happiness. Yeah. It's an absolute truth. So tell me about, okay, they're going to make this movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, and you're going to be like a central character. And what, how did that all come to be? And, and when that all got played out on the big screen, I mean, that was a big budget movie, big deal. What was that like to see yourself portrayed in a movie? Yeah, well, the movie came after I was out for a while. And so I was back in the thick of things and doing good. And then, boom, this movie's coming out. And I did have a lot of, I was definitely anxious about it. Did, were you consulted at all? Did you get to contribute yeah, to the story? Yeah, they did. They came to me. Ah. And they wanted me to work with them. And we did work with them, come to think of it. They did film in our store. I figured, you know what, they're going to make the film anyway. If I work with them, maybe they'll treat me, they'll treat me kindly. And they did. You know what? They sort of portrayed me as a bit of a nerd, which I was fine with. 
And so we came out of that movie with a stronger brand, believe it or not. That's interesting. Particularly with men, with boys. Huh. Because it was a guy film, you know, it was mostly a guy film. So yeah. now I go to, when I go to the Brooklyn Nets games, we have season tickets. They put me on the jumbo screen if I'm in the audience and they play the thing from the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street. Well, there's a scene where they, they're high on quaaludes. Oh my and God. And they say my name like it's a mantra. Steve Madden. And they go on and on. So now when I go to the basketball game, they do that Steve Madden thing. And so it's, a bit, it's, it's good fun. So you had a second act. I mean, you came out of jail, which is a horrible experience, and and your business takes off. And again, to the point that when we first started this call, I mean, you're a top 10 vendor at Nordstrom. That, that's big, and it's not unique to us. You're big in a lot of places. I'm just, you've made this a really big and successful business, which again, coming from where you came from and how you did it, it's such a great entrepreneur's story. Tell me about that second act for you. Like, okay, I'm out of prison. Here we go. And I'm going to grow this thing. So the second act was great. You know, marriage, kids, great co-workers, big company, lots of talent I'm working with. It's not all about me anymore. Although my name is on the shoes. We just kept getting bigger and bigger. One of the things we did was we were acquiring companies. So, you know, we bought Betsy Johnson. We bought Dolce Vita, Blondo, BB Dakota. And so we just had this broad, big, young company. So tell me, when you came out of jail and stuff, and your title, I think now it's like more like a chief creative person. Were you forced to change your title and your role in the company? I had a seven-year ban. When the seven years was up, I thought, why would I go back to that? I can just be Steve Madden. I don't need to be an officer. I don't need to have any of that stuff. And it worked out well. So at a certain point, you lost... I don't know, any sense of needing control. You know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of people, particularly founders, it's really hard for them to evolve their business to the place where it's not about them making every decision, that they, yes. to your point, empower yes. people to do it. I have the best kind of control. You know, I have real control over the spirit of the company. And But, you know, I'm, it's true what you say. It's a, it's a, that's a whole podcast you could do about founders and all that. And they tend to mess things up. <laughs> Certainly, there's been a lot of founders in the shoe business that have bit the dust. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we could go over a bunch of names. But so I had this great team so I could be Steve and have the big company. Yeah. All right. So you're a keen observer of business and, you know, you, you're pretty closely linked with what we're doing. And, you know, you're, you're really a good business partner, your, your whole company. So I'm curious, what advice do you have for me, for, for Nordstrom, how we can do better? I would say that you guys should all read that book that Mr. Bruce wrote. <laughs> Leave it better than you found it. Like everybody <laughs> should have to read book? that goddamn book. <laughs> Maybe I should read it again. Read it again. It was a great book. I enjoyed it. And I, I would say that just, just to have a North Star, you know, whatever that is that you think, you know, for me, Nordstrom, like when you walk into Nordstrom, somebody's going to wait on you and give you service like no other department store in the world. You guys should just keep that as a North Star and, and, and all the other stuff. Because I know what it's like. You have a huge corporation today. You know, you have an international behemoth. And so it's easy to get to lose sight of. So I'm a big believer in that, is to, above all else, keep that sacred in your company. 
Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. No, I mean, it's hard because, as you know, in the day-to-day, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that stuff. Oh, God, yes, so easy. You know, it's easy to sit here and talk about it, but at the end of the day, like, there's some core values that you must, and in my company, it's product. You know, it's product. That's it. When you don't know what to do, go make a hot shoe. Yeah. But you have a great culture as we do, so... That would be the thing. Everybody should remind themselves of what what they're doing, you know, pleasing that customer. Yeah. So as you're looking back over this, all the success that you've had and, you know, what brings you joy now? Like when you wake up every day, what are, what are the things that you're doing that are, that's bringing you joy? Well, I, to be honest with you, in the non-work space, you know, there are things that bring me joy. I love going to bakeries. <laughs> I love, I really do. Like, I love to go to a bakery and buy a fresh rye bread. It brings me so much joy, I can't even tell you. It's like a little quirk that I have. And I love when everybody wears my shoes. (laughs) I love to go and see my shoes on people's feet. Never gets old for me. And, you know, I have an interesting thing happening to me now. So my daughter is turning 15. And... Her name is Stevie Madden. Awesome. And she was not wearing Steve Madden. She was wearing Nike. Every single day she was wearing Jordans. Ugh. It was driving me crazy. <laughs> the sneaker business, you know, you, it's hard to argue with the Nike purchase. Yeah. Every, I mean, she'd go to a party, a bar mitzvah, a confirmation, and she would wear Jordans with a dress. It was crazy. And finally, she's wearing Steve Madden. <laughs> just the last maybe eight weeks and my little girl my little I have a little one that's 10 and she only wears Steve Madden that's good so that's a good thing all right um I, you've been really nice to give me all this time Steve and I, I I appreciate you telling me your story and like I said even though I know you and I, I know your story it's it's inspiring to hear it again and you're a good guy uh you're a great business thank partner you, thank you I enjoyed it very much and uh you know Nordstrom's is the most important, is a very important, I shouldn't say, you know, <laughs> no, wait, wait, that, that was podcast gold right there when you said we're the most yeah. important, Steve. No, so. no, <laughs> I want to say, I love all my accounts, but you are better than most. <laughs> well, Steve, thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Okay, pal. See ya. Bye-bye. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Podcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experiences with Nordstrom, so if you have a story about how you received great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line and be part of the Nordipod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with another highly influential individual from our team, Executive Vice President for Designer, Men's and Women's Apparel, Sam Lobin. I remember being on the shop floor of Selfridges 
and kind of out of nowhere, uh, Paul McCartney <laughs> came over and said, oh, I really like your coat, mate. He said that to you? Said, yeah, he said it to me. <laughs> um, I said, it's Raph Simmons, it's over there. And I remember he made a joke. He said, oh, yeah, but I couldn't buy the same coat in case we were both wearing it at the same place. And then we'd have to call each other to make sure that we weren't wearing it. And he kind of he riffed <laughs> nice. on this whole little joke. And I was like, yeah, OK, I mean, it's Paul McCartney. Got yeah. something. Sam has a really interesting background in retail and an extremely positive customer-centric philosophy, which lends to strengthen our whole ethos around service. He's a humble guy and super knowledgeable. He's actually become quite a tastemaker and an influencer in our industry. And he randomly gets unsolicited compliments from iconic celebrities. You're really going to enjoy listening to Sam's story next time on The Nordy Pod. Mm-hmm.